Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On today's show... Uh, oh, sorry, I forgot to silence my phone. Sorry about that. Um, just let me check this and we can start again. I don't know this number. Welcome to Cat Facts? What the heck is that? You have subscribed to Cat Facts. You will receive audio of scientifically validated cat facts for one hour. Here is your first cat fact. Cat DNA can be used for criminal investigations. So the shed hair of a cat should contain some DNA. So it's basically tagging everything in your house. Press OK to unsubscribe from cat facts. I'm pretty sure I didn't sign up for this. Let's press OK. Command not recognized. Here is a cat fact. Cats can make hundreds of different facial expressions. So there's a wide variety of facial muscle movements that they're actually capable of producing in the ear region, the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. Enter your full name to unsubscribe from Cat Facts. Okay, this is very strange. Uh, R-O-B-E-R-T McDonald. Okay. Command not recognized. Here is a cat fact. Cats purr without using specific neural signals from their brains. The cat is using uh, the one part of its vocal folds to produce, let's call them normal sounds like meows or screams, and only using the full vocal fold with these fat inclusions to make the lower frequency purrs. Do an entire program on cats to unsubscribe from cat facts. What? A whole show on cats? Are you kidding me? This is extortion. Well, I actually like cats. So if that's what I have to do, all right. Welcome to a special edition of our show, Quirks and Quarks and Kitty Cats. Cats can be very expressive. They can use body language like whipping their tails or raising their ears to let humans and other animals know how they're feeling. And if that's not enough, their meows and hisses will do the rest of the work. But cats' faces can be kind of hard to read. Sure, there's the adorable blep with the tongue hanging out of their mouth that could indicate pleasure, or the wide-eyed look of fear cats get if they hear a vacuum cleaner roar. But it turns out, while it might be hard for humans to perceive them, cats can make a surprising number of facial expressions. Researchers Brittany Florkowitz and Lauren Scott recorded videos of interactions between cats at a Los Angeles cat cafe, and they identified more than 200 different facial expressions. Dr. Florkowitz is an assistant professor of psychology and the founder of the Animal Behavior and Cognition Lab at Lyon College in Arkansas. Dr. Florkowitz, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, this is a, a cat cafe, so set it up for me. How, how did you actually conduct the experiment? 
Every week, Lauren Scott would go to the cat cafe and she would follow the most active group of cats and she would record the facial expressions they were producing to one another. She was oftentimes sitting on the sidelines just watching the cats interact um, because our study, we wanted to focus on just how cats were interacting with cats, not necessarily how they were interacting with humans. And what did she find? So in our current study, we only really categorized facial expressions based on whether or not they were affiliative or friendly versus non-affiliative or not friendly. And we used other types of behavioral cues, such as, you know, rubbing behavior, playful behavior in order to make those distinctions. But she found that there's lots of different kinds of social interactions that can take place between cats. And this is hopefully going to be the start of follow-up studies where we try to discern the more nuanced meaning of these different types of facial expressions. Well, how were you able to capture all these different cat expressions from cat to cat? Yes. So we make use of something called facial action coding systems when it comes to the study and identification of all of these distinct facial expressions. So whether that fact systems work is that they're training its users to identify subtle and overt facial muscle movements. And it's the combination of these individual facial movements that create a facial expression. So in order to use the facts, uh, you have to study the anatomy and physiology of the cat face and understand what kinds of facial muscle movements they're capable of producing. What we ended up doing was we went through all of this video footage and for every social interaction, we coded each and every facial muscle movement that was being produced by cats for other cats and what the combination of those movements was like for each interaction. Well, what kind of movements are you talking about? Like what, what uh, muscles or facial features do cats use to express themselves? Yes. So there's a wide variety of facial muscle movements that they're actually capable of producing in the ear region, the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. Uh, so for example, when it comes to friendly facial expressions, we see that the ears often move forward towards the other cat that they're interacting with. Whereas in non-friendly interactions, the ears move backwards instead. So it's those facial muscle movements that we're coding and we're looking at the combination of those to get that number of 276 distinct facial expressions. Boy, 276. How does that compare to uh, human facial expressions? So we have facts, thankfully, for humans and also other animals such as dogs. Uh, one of the obstacles is that, unfortunately, we don't have a comprehensive list of all of these different facial muscle movement combinations that humans and other animals like dogs possess. We do, however, have information about the combinations that gibbons and chimpanzees can produce. So we can draw comparisons using those two types of animals. And what we find is that the 276 distinct facial expressions that cats can produce, it's actually more than gibbons who have about 80, but it's also less than chimpanzees who have over 300. Now, the, the facial expressions that these cats were expressing to each other, how do they compare to wild cats, even the big ones like lions and tigers and cougars? One of the interesting things about our current study is that uh, we were able to find evidence for something called a play face. And as the name suggests, this particular facial expression is produced during playful interactions between animals. 
we see that lots of different animals can produce this. And it's a very useful signal because during playful interactions, things can get rough pretty quick, especially with, you know, rough and tumble play, wrestling and so forth. So play faces are great for trying to moderate those kinds of social interactions that are potentially very risky. So the classic play face among animals oftentimes will include the corners of the lips being drawn backwards and the mouth being opened or relaxed. And sometimes a vocalization like a grunt or a laugh will accompany that facial expression. So in our current study, we saw evidence of these play faces during these more playful affiliative interactions. And we actually have current studies that show that big cats are capable of producing these play faces as well. Oh, okay, so this uh, is not just a result of domestication, in other words. Chances are that when you compare domesticated cats to wild cats, they probably are producing, you know, more affiliative facial expressions to navigate some of these social interactions that are taking place in larger groups, right? Because cats can live in colonies up to hundreds of individuals, sometimes taking over entire islands. So chances are they're having more social interactions than other cat species who are more solitary in nature. But what's great is that the play face shows that there's also evolution continuity, that cats are retaining some of these facial expressions that they've acquired over evolutionary history. Were you surprised at how many facial expressions cats can actually make? Yeah. As someone that's been studying given behavior for quite some time, but also working with chimpanzees, Lauren and I, we knew that there was a good probability that cats were producing not just antagonistic facial expressions, but also friendly ones as well, because they do live in these social groupings. They have social bonds with one another. So they're probably using friendly facial expressions to navigate those kinds of interactions. But the 276 number was definitely a surprise to us. And it was really interesting to think about how domestication has shaped that facial expression repertoire, and then thinking about comparisons that we could potentially make with other species that are domesticated, but also not domesticated as well. Dr. Florkowitz, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Brittany Florkowitz is an assistant professor of psychology and the founder of the Animal Behavior and Cognition Lab at Lyon College in Arkansas. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the world watched research into infectious disease being done in real time. From the discovery of the new coronavirus to the race for vaccines and effective treatments. Along with the advances in our knowledge of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, came an unexpected bonus. The antiviral drugs developed to fight COVID in humans turned out to be very effective in combating a different coronavirus one that can be lethal to cats. This cat coronavirus is responsible for a deadly disease called feline infectious peritonitis, or FIP, and until recently this disease had no treatment. Danielle Gunn-Moore studies infectious diseases in cats, and she called this recent development the biggest breakthrough in small animal science in decades. Dr. Gunn-Moore is a professor of feline medicine at the University of Edinburgh and the Roslyn Institute. Hello and welcome to our program. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for this invitation. First of all, tell me about this cat coronavirus. Why is it so deadly to the animals? 
Well, a number of things. Certainly the, the, the virus, the standard cat coronavirus, it's all over the world. And most cats, if they go outside, they catch it. And it's very rare in the standard way this disease works. It's very rare that just occasionally in certain circumstances that within an individual cat, that coronavirus starts mutating. We all understand about coronaviruses and they like to mutate. Um, And then within that individual cat, it turns from a disease that causes a bit of diarrhea and nothing worse to a disease that actually attacks all the veins in the cat and then the veins start leaking. And so the name feline infectious peritonitis comes about because these cats get very distended bellies um, where all the fluid that has leaked out of veins in their abdomen and they get a belly full of full of fluid. And that's one of the presentations. It can affect the brain. It can affect the kidneys. And until these new drugs came along, uh, when this happened, it was 100% fatal. Wow. Well, what changed in your understanding of this virus in recent years? Uh, In recent weeks, actually, hot off the press, um, is our recent finding about what's happening in Cyprus. So starting at the beginning of this year, there's been a massive increase in the number of cases of FIP in Cyprus. And what we've just been able to show is the cat virus has recombined with part of a dog virus. The spike gene that it's grabbed from the dog is from an outbreak of pantropic dog coronavirus. Pantropic means all um, tissues. So this is a very, very vicious form of the virus. And then Cyprus is literally, they, they don't know how many cats, but the suggestion is a million cats. And so, so many cats, such a small space. And so we've got this massive outbreak because this absolutely hideous virus has been amplified through the cats, but it gets worse. This strain is pre-mutated. So it gets into the cat. The cat gets incredibly sick. If you don't treat them, they will be dead. And sadly, they also shed vast amounts of virus. Wow. Now, is is this uh, new super virus, is it spread through the air? How is it going from cat to cat? So we're pretty certain it's being shed in the feces the same way it would be with normal coronavirus, but at much, much higher levels than you would ever normally see. Is there any way to treat this new super coronavirus? In Britain, we're using um, remdesivir and GS4415-24. Um, I know it needs a proper name. In that they do have those two drugs in Cyprus, but they are rather expensive. But what the fabulous Cypriot vets have managed to do is campaign to have a derogation for molnupiravir. In the whole of Europe, um, including Britain, we're not allowed to give molnupiravir to any other animals but people. But the Cypriot government have been really good and they've said, okay, you can use this in cats and that's quite cheap. Now that's an antiviral drug, correct? It's another antiviral, yes. It's a lot like remdesivir. How successful can the treatment be? Uh, Data we've just published on 300 cases that were, over 300 cases that were treated with the standard three-month protocol. It's over 85% successful, which is crazy because, you know, two years ago, this disease was a death sentence. This is, this is why it is. It's, it's, like, it's like fate has given us the most wonderful gift 
of having the positive thing of COVID is giving us something we can treat this devastating disease for. And then it take away, it takes away with the other hand and gives us this double whammy of this absolutely hideous virus. The only saving grace is at least we've got the treatment in place before this hideous virus came along. Just finally, what was it like for you as a feline medicine specialist to witness the development of a treatment for this previously incurable disease? Oh, just the the best, absolutely the best. So I did my PhD on this in you know the last century, and I did it because I saw so many sick, dying, beautiful kittens during my PH during my residency. That's why I wanted to study it. And I really didn't think we would get a treatment for it in my academic lifetime. And um, to be part of the, the journey, to be one of the people who's been able to have the honor to be involved, it's uh, it's really good. I just wish the fates hadn't thrown this monster virus at us as well. But there's a lot of really good people all the way around the world who are dedicated to trying to solve these feline coronavirus uh, problems. So we're in good hands. Dr. Gunmore, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Danielle Gunmore is a professor of feline medicine at the University of Edinburgh and the Roslyn Institute. nothing quite so soothing as the loud purring of a cat in your lap. Even the most committed dog people will agree that when it comes to this comforting sound, cats reign supreme. But exactly how and why cats purr has been a mystery. Any cat owner will tell you that their feline friends will purr when they're relaxed or when they get a good scratch behind the ear. But cats are also known to purr if they're in pain or stressed. And because cats don't generally purr on command, I've yet to meet a cat that does anything on command, scientists have had a hard time explaining how purring happens. Well, a recent study brings us closer to finding the answer. Tecumseh Fitch has been studying the anatomical structures that are involved in purring. He's a professor of cognitive biology at the University of Vienna. Dr. Fitch, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Nice to be here, Bob. Up until your work, what was the prominent explanation for how domestic cats purr? Well, the way most organisms make their sounds, and this ranges from uh, bat echolocation calls to human speech and singing to elephants to whales, is pretty much based on the same principle, that you put the larynx into a position where the vocal folds can vibrate, and then you simply blow air through it, and that vibration happens in a sort of passive way. So you don't have to control each pulse of the vocalization. What was thought until our study for cats is that they did something radically different from that, where each pulse of the purr was actually accompanied by a muscle twitch that had to be driven by the cat by a neural signal from the cat's brain. And what we were able to show is that that's not necessary for purring to occur. Well, how did you test this out? Well, it's pretty easy um, because if the active muscle contraction theory is true, it wouldn't 
be possible for a cat larynx to purr unless it's attached to a cat's brain. So what we were able to do was from veterinary, from animals that had to be euthanized, we were able to get larynges quite fresh and blow air through them. And of course, these larynges had been removed from the cat by the vet. And so there was no neural input attached and the muscles couldn't twitch. And yet these larynges, when we blew air through them, were able to make these purr, purring vocalizations. So what is it about those those larynxes that make them do that, make that purring sound without the uh, the intention coming from the brain? Well, what we think, there's some strange fatty growths within the, the vocal tract, uh, within the vocal folds that are quite unusual. And what we think is that those enable these very low frequency purrs to occur. Because if you think about it, a purr is incredibly low in frequency. They're about 30 hertz, so about 30 times per second. That's far lower than any human can sing. And in fact, it's about the same frequency as a lion's roar. So it's, it's very surprising that a little house cat that weighs a few kilograms can produce these low frequencies. But you would think then that if these vocal cords have these extra masses on them that make them vibrate slowly, then how does a cat make a high sound like a meow? Yeah, well, there our best evidence is from other from primates. So unlike humans, most primates, for example, a chimpanzee or a squirrel monkey have, in a sense, two parts to their vocal folds. They have the normal part, which is like what we use for singing and speech. And then these little membranes, these sharp edges that stick up above the vocal folds. And those seem to allow very high frequencies to occur. So what we think is that the cat is using uh, the one part of its vocal folds to produce let's call them normal sounds like meows or screams, and only using the full vocal fold with these fat inclusions to make the lower frequency purrs. Okay. I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to think of uh, a sound like uh, if, I, if I make my vocal cords vibrate but don't speak, it's sort of like a... Yeah, Is that the idea? That's pretty good. There, you're, <laughs> you're probably using a different set of folds, though. You're probably using your ventricular folds, um, if you can do uh, glottal fry, which, uh, it, you know, basically uh, something like that, that's probably closer. Some people can do that very well. I can't do it particularly well. <laughs> well, do big cats in the wild produce purring sounds as well? Well, there's a distinction among the cats between the so-called roaring cats, the, the really big guys, the lions, tigers, jaguars, and leopards who, who roar but do not purr. And then the smaller felids up to the size of a mountain lion. Are there other animals that have similar vocal cord anatomy to cats? Yes. Probably the best studied example is a frog, a very famous species of frog called the Tungara frog. And they also have, in this case, it's more of a cartilaginous, like a, a little ball of cartilage that they can um, selectively include in the vocal cord vibrations to make those vi the vibrations slower. So you figured out the physics of the cat purr. Do you have any idea why they do it? Well, as you said, the most obvious uh, answer is that they do it when they're happy. So in particular, when mothers are nursing and the kittens are getting their milk and everybody's happy and warm, it's a purr fest. It's a, it's a purr party. Everybody's purring. Everybody feels everyone else purring as well as hearing them. So that seems to be the primary thing. And what we experience when we have a cat on our lap and we pet them and they purr is probably hearkening back to that, to that mother infant, um, 
relationship. But the mystery is that cats will also purr in in weird situations, like when they're in pain or some, sometimes when they're in the vet's office. So that may have a function more like the cat trying to calm itself, but we really don't know in situations like that what, what the cat is signaling or who it's signaling it to. It may really be kind of like hugging itself or trying to make itself feel better. Mm. Now, you studied the cat larynx when it was outside of its body. How would you go about studying purring cats while the cat's alive? Yeah, it's it's not very easy because if if – if it was a human, um, what we've done to ourselves is we can put an endoscope either down our nose or into our throat and look at our vocal folds and then sing or speak and we can see what's going on. That requires us a lot of self-control to have this thing stuck down your nose or in your mouth and, and still vocalize. Cats won't do that willingly. So that that's kind of out. That would be one way of doing it. Another trick, which we're a little more hopeful that we can do, is a, using a device called EGG, which again, we can use very easily on singing and, and speech in humans. And it basically involves two small electrodes on the outside of the throat. And basically, by passing a very faint electrical current through the electrodes, we can tell when the vocal folds come into contact. And that's a very useful technique for, for humans, um, for singing and speech. It's also been used for various animals. We've uh, done it with various species. But for cats, it again demands that not only that the cat will purr when we want it to, but it will purr when it's got two electrodes and some gel on either side of its throat. Again, uh, we're a little more hopeful about that, but it does seem like a bit of a long, a long shot. And what's your next step? Trying to do the EGG, I think, is one thing. Building some models of the so computer models of these fat inclusions and learning more about the nature of these, and also looking across other felid species, even in wild cats, we don't know whether these so the 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 ancestor of our domesticated cats, we don't know if these are present in the adult animals. So there's plenty more comparative anatomy to do. Um, to, to try and understand in other species or in other subspecies of cats what's going on. And hope that that purr doesn't turn into a growl. Yes, yes, as it, as it tends to do when you try and mess with them. <laughs> Dr. Fitch, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Dr. Tecumseh Fitch is a professor of cognitive biology at the University of Vienna in Austria. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcast. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quirks. You have subscribed to Cat Facts. Here is a cat fact. Cats evolved from a wild ancestor called the African wild cat. Somewhere between 3,500 and 10,000 years ago, somewhere in the Middle East, is where cats were domesticated. Look, we're giving you a whole program on cats. How do I scrub this app off my phone? You are subscribed to Cat Facts. Enter a valid credit card number to unsubscribe. Oh, I definitely don't like where this is going.
Whether you currently live with a cat or ever visited a house of someone who owns a cat, you know that cat hair gets everywhere. It sticks to the furniture, to the carpet, to clothes, and it's nearly impossible to completely remove. But, not to let the cat out of the bag, it turns out this nuisance could be a key to crime fighting. A team of scientists in the UK wondered if cat hair could be used like fingerprints by matching cat hair left at a crime scene to the one stuck to a suspect's clothing or found in their home. And now they figured out a novel technique to do just that. Mark Jobling was part of the team. He's a professor in the Department of Genetics and Genome Biology at the University of Leicester. Hello, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Hi. What inspired you to think about using cat hair as a forensic tool? It has been used before and we've used it ourselves before. In fact, we used it um, to help out a police force in the UK uh, regarding a murder case. And really our innovation has been to, to improve the power of the test. And, and to make it more discriminating and useful. Well, how much information about a cat can be found in its hair? The hair that comes off a cat is that is called shed hair. So it's like when we just lose a few hairs now and again, that's, that's the same thing. It's different from being yanked out by the root. And if you did that, you would end up with plenty of, of DNA in the root of the hair. That's the kind of cellular material that's there. So the shed hair of a cat is not very identifiable in terms of just morphology by using a microscope. But of course, it should contain some DNA from that cat. And, and that's where we've gone. So the answer to trying to identify or make a, a match is to go for the DNA. Oh, I see. So the shed hair without the root doesn't have as much DNA in it as a hair that would be pulled out. That's correct. And furthermore, it doesn't have um, what we call the nuclear genome, and that is the DNA that comes from mum and dad. So the, the vast majority of our DNA is in chromosomes, comes from mum and dad, and it's in that DNA that in humans and indeed in cats, you can do individual uniquely identifying DNA profiling of the kind that's described on kind of CSI programs all the time. Mm -hmm. The problem with the hair is it doesn't contain that kind of DNA. So we have to look at another kind, and that kind is called mitochondrial DNA. And it's the kind that comes uh, down to you from your mother. So mothers pass this on to their children, and males don't pass it on at all. Uh, so that is present in, in hairs, and that's what we've had to target. Well, take me through that. How did you develop a technique to use that to identify a cat so that the forensic scientists can identify a cat in a home or a crime scene and a suspect's home? So first of all, mitochondrial DNA isn't as variable as the DNA that's normally targeted in domestic tests. And the other thing to say is that, of course, um, all siblings... Uh, whether they're cats or humans, share the same mitochondrial DNA because they, they got it from the same mother. So there are cases where you expect to see exactly the same sequence uh, within a population. Oh, so from a genetic point of view, all the cats look alike? <laughs> it could be that way. And indeed, the other thing about cats is that they were domesticated relatively recently. So we've got two problems. We've got the problem of mitochondrial DNA in any species being relatively low diversity. And then we've got the problem in cats as domesticated animals that they're all relatively similar to each other because they share a recent origin. So what this means we have to do is to maximize the power of the test by determining the DNA sequence of the whole mitochondrial 
DNA molecule. And that's a, a weird circular molecule of about 17,000 letters of DNA or base pairs of DNA. So we need to do the whole thing. And that's what we've been able to do in a very sensitive test that can work with as little as a single cat hair. And we've also shown that it can work with cat hairs that are, that are more than 20 years old. So we now have a way of maximizing the observed genetic diversity within a, a single cat hair. And that gives us much more power in terms of matching between crime scenes and suspects, for example. Oh, I see. So you're saying that there's very little difference in the mitochondrial DNA. So you needed to examine it more in more detail to get to to look for differences. Exactly so. So we're kind of taking a, a microscope to the, if you like, to the to the DNA variation and making sure we capture all of it. And that means that in practice now, if you take two random cats, you have only about a 3% chance that they are uh, they have the same mitochondrial type. Whereas the previous method, which we used a few years ago, the chances of having the same mitochondrial type between two cho random cats was over 20%. Hmm. So a much, much poorer, much less discriminating test. Now, has your new technique been used in a real criminal case? Not yet. Um, we've actually used it in a kind of missing cat case. But we were contacted by a person whose cat had gone missing some long time ago. And then somebody had found skeletal remains of this cat or a cat. Uh, it was suspected to be the missing cat. And this person still had the uh, male offspring, if you like, or the son of this missing cat. And so if, if this truly was the, the missing cat truly was the mother of the existing cat, then they should share the same mitochondrial DNA sequence. And we were able to show that they did um, using bone DNA and hair DNA in the case of the of the missing and the uh, remaining cat. And we're hoping now that police working on uh, forensic cases, in particular cold cases, where they do have animal hair recovered from scenes, will now turn to us and ask us to do analysis of their samples. And if we do that, we think we will be able to offer some serious help in some of those cases. Now, how will analyzing cat hair be different from using saliva or blood for genetic analysis? Well, um, the difference there goes back to the fact that you know hair is ubiquitous if you have a pet. So it's basically tagging everything in your house with something that's potentially identifying. So if the item is taken out by somebody, then you've got that link. The other difference is is between this aspect of containing all the DNA in a cell, which allows you to do individual identification compared to the mitochondrial tests. I, I guess cat hair also lasts longer. Yes, hair DNA, although there's not much of it, and it's predominantly this mitochondrial DNA, actually lasts very well. It doesn't degrade, whereas DNA in blood or other body fluids degrades pretty rapidly through the action of bacteria or fungi, whereas, you know, in hair, hair the DNA is actually protected from the environment um, pretty well. Mm. Well, I guess they'll have to change the scripts on these forensic programs, television programs, to say, oh, look, we found some mitochondrial DNA. Yes, and it's interesting that the forensic TV programs are responsible for something called the CSI effect, and that part of that is the education of criminals in how to avoid detection. So they, they take great pains not to leave their own DNA behind. 
But the idea that they could leave a, a crime scene being tagged by the owner's pet is something that hasn't come across yet. So, uh, you know, as soon as they start getting educated about that, maybe they'll they'll come up with a workaround. Hmm. Okay, maybe we better keep that quiet. <laughs> maybe. Dr. Jobling, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Mark Jobling is a professor in the Department of Genetics and Genome Biology at the University of Leicester. They say dogs have owners, cats have staff. Even if you've never lived with a cat, you know that our relationship with them is drastically different from other domesticated animals. One reason for this may be that cats were never fully domesticated. So, despite sharing our homes with cats for millennia, there's much about our feline companions that we don't know, including exactly when and where humans began keeping cats as pets. This is one of the questions evolutionary biologist Jonathan Lossus tackles in his new book, The Cat's Meow, How the Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. Dr. Lossus is a professor of biology at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Hello and welcome to our program. Thanks, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I understand that your primary work in evolutionary biology is studying lizards. Where did your interest in cats come from? Well, my interest in cats goes way back. When I was five years old, we adopted a rescue Siamese cat from a local shelter to give to my father for his birthday. And ever since then, I have been crazy about cats. However, as I developed as a scientist, it never occurred to me to do anything scientifically with cats for two reasons. One is uh, I wanted to go out into nature and study animals as they live their lives. And anybody who has tried to follow a cat knows it's basically impossible. As soon as they figure out what you're doing, they, uh, they give you the shake and off they go. <laughs> uh, and the other reason is that I didn't think there was any interesting scientific research being done on cats. And by cats, I mean domestic cats. Um, but 10 years ago, I discovered that, in fact, there are a lot of scientists doing all kinds of interesting research on cats. Well, you certainly go through that in your book. And uh, let's start with some of the theories around how and where cats started to be domesticated. Well, we know that it was in the area that we now call the Middle East, um, because that's where where civilization first began, where people first settled down, gave up their hunter-gatherer ways, and started uh, raising crops and, and living in villages. And uh, you know what happens when uh, farmers raise crops? They grow as much as they can and store the excess uh, for leaner times. And so when you have big piles of seeds and grains and so on, that attracts rodents. And in turn, rodents attract the African wildcat, a wild species of cat that occurs throughout Africa and Western Asia. And so that is that was the ancestor of the domestic cat. It was a cat that learned that there was a rich bounty of food around people and just evolved to take advantage of that. So in many respects, they domesticated themselves. Now, the question is, is where exactly that occurred and when? And we know that by the time of the ancient Egyptians, about 3,500 years ago, cats were definitely domesticated. There are paintings on tomb walls showing them with collars on, sitting under chairs at the dining room table, eating from dishes, and in other ways, clearly they were family members at that part. But the question is, did it start then or was it earlier? Right. There is an archaeological finding on the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean from about 10,000 years ago of a cat very carefully buried at the foot of a person. 
And that person was also buried with other treasured objects, such as shiny stones and axes and so on, suggesting that the cat was a treasured object as well. But we don't know if that was a domesticated cat or just an African wild cat that they had adopted. So somewhere between 3,500 and 10,000 years ago, somewhere in the Middle East is where cats were domesticated. Now, you write in your book that cats are only semi-domesticated. What do you mean by that? Well, first, I should say this is not a scientific term, but it's basically people, a lot of people have said basically the same thing, that if you look at the difference between a domestic cat and an African wild cat, there aren't a lot of differences. And most domesticated animals are quite different from their ancestors. Think about dogs versus wolves or uh, our domestic pigs versus wild boars. Those are animals that are very different from their ancestors, but cats are scarcely different at all. Well, you also write uh, about what would happen if a cat was the size of your dog. Well, some people have speculated that, uh, that such a cat would be dangerous. And I mean, perhaps it would. We know what awesome predators cats are. And a big wild cat, you would not want to keep at home. There are stories of people with lions and tigers with bad outcomes. Um, <laughs> On the other hand, one of the changes that has occurred in domestication of cats, there are some changes, and one is that they have become more friendly to people. And that's probably an intentional move on their part to, uh, to get more goodies out of us. Um, that is, you know, it's a back and forth. And so the d domestic cats are friendlier to people. And presumably, if breeders ever developed really large cats, they would select not only for large size, but on friendly behavior. You mentioned the African cat. Are you suggesting that, that that's the origin of cats, is Africa? Yes, there is a species called the African wildcat that is found uh, throughout all of Africa and the Middle East. And the DNA makes clear that that is the ancestor of the domestic cat. Well, we've been studying cats for a long time, but it seems there are still some basic questions, like the origin of, of the cat species, that they're still up for debate. Why is that? Well, people are using the latest genetic techniques to solve this particular question, and so it's taken a while, but, but now that question is being answered. But there are many other aspects about the, the behavior and ecology of domestic cats that just haven't been studied very much. What cats do outside, what your pet cat does when it goes outside, what feral cats do outside, what impact they have on the environment, all of these things we have a lot more to learn. Now, one of the exciting things is there's all kinds of new technologies that's really helping advance uh, our knowledge of these areas. For example, there are GPS trackers that researchers put on the cats, put them on their collars or maybe on a little harness on their back that can tell you where the cat is at all times. Well, we can now get a very good idea of where they go. And then researchers as well are, are, have developed what are called kitty cams or kitty cameras. It's a tiny little camera that you put on the collar around their neck, and that gives you a cat's eye view of what the cat is doing when it's out and about. And so you can get a real sense of not only where they go, but what it is they're doing. So those are just two examples of modern approaches that are really revealing a lot of the secrets of cats. So where do they go and what do they do? Well, they do all kinds of stuff. Uh, <laughs> now, it turns out that most Pet cats, if you let them outside, don't go very far, maybe to the next house or a couple houses away, but they stay very close by. 
Um, a small minority of cats will go very large distances. Uh, I think the largest recorded one had a range of four square miles that it, it wandered over. So some of them go quite great distances. And then what they're doing is, I would say, two of the most important and interesting findings are, number one, many cats have multiple homes. Now, people who have their pet cats think that they're the only place the cat lives, that uh, the cat loves you and doesn't go anywhere else. But the tracking studies clearly show that many cats will enter several other houses in their neighborhood and they will get pets, they will, uh, they will eat, get food. And so they, they're two timers, if you will. <laughs> and, and that was the tracking studies clearly show that. And the, and the kitty cameras did too. It shows the cats, you know, going through the cat flap and eating food and nuzzling up with the neighbors and so on. Uh, the other thing, which is perhaps more serious, is cats do a lot of stupid things. Um, they certainly cross a lot of roads, which is very dangerous. They interact with other cats, with dogs. Coyotes are a big problem in many places. And when they're out and about, they, they run into them. Uh, they go into, into attics and into basements and into storm, storm culverts, all places they can get locked in. And so they do a lot of dumb stuff. And the kitty cameras clearly show all the dangerous things that cats do. Okay. Now, those are the domestic cats mostly. But what about feral cats, unowned cats that uh, sometimes live in colonies? What's that tell us about cat domestication? I mean, they, they seem to be closer to their, their wild cousins than, say, a pedigree munchkin cat. That is absolutely true. And one thing about these outdoor cats, unowned outdoor cats, is they very quickly revert to their wild existence. And that just shows they're not very domesticated. They have, if you will, one paw still in the wild because it's very easy for them to revert and basically go back to living like their ancestors did, hunting and uh, getting by quite well. There is, however, one really significant thing that colony cats do that the African wild cat and almost all other feline species don't do. And that is they live sociably in social groups. The cats have a reputation of being aloof loners that live by themselves, that not being very friendly to each other. It turns out that, at least in some circumstances, that could not be further from the truth. What happens is that when you have a lot of cats living together outdoors, they form into friendly social groups. And these groups are composed of related females, a mother and her daughters, uh, maybe her granddaughters, so cousins. Um, all related females live together and they're very friendly to each other. They will lie next to each other. They will groom each other. They play together. They will even nurse each other's kittens and have even been reported serving as midwives, helping another female give birth. So they're very social animals. Now, this only occurs where there are high densities of cats. And that occurs where there's a lot of food, either because people provide it to them, either intentionally or in places like fishing villages where there are lots of scrap foods. But when you have a lot of food, you get a lot of cats, and they, they form into these social groups that are very friendly to each other. Wow. Do they uh, hunt cooperatively like lions do? Uh, they do not hunt cooperatively, which I would say, thank goodness. Imagine <laughs> a bunch of cats taking down a raccoon or a woodchuck. But in really almost all other respects, they are very similar to lions. Lions are famous for their prides, their social groups that are that work together and are very friendly. Lion prides, too, are made up of related females. And so for the most part, 
Domestic cats, when they're living at high densities, form into prides just like lions and unlike any other species of feline. Now, we have also had a hand in changing the way cats look with different breeds. Uh, you look at a Siamese and a Persian cat. The Siamese cat has this long triangular head with a pointy nose, and the Persian cat looks like it ran into a wall. Its face is completely flat. It's hard to believe they belong to the same species. So where are all these breeds coming from? Well, breeders have selected individuals with these traits that they have progressively changed the cats. Uh, in the case of the Siamese, every generation favoring longer, pointier snouts. And with Persians, the opposite, favoring them with shorter and shorter noses. And it just shows the power of a selection process to transform a population very quickly. And this is evolution, and it's very rapid evolution at the hands of breeders. Uh, of course, we see the same things in all the breeds of dogs and of many other domesticated animals as well. I was surprised in your book uh, to learn that the hairless sphinx cat is a Canadian breed. Yes, uh, yes. I've been from Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Do you have a favorite cat breed origin story? Many of them, a particular cat had a mutation and someone saw the cat and said, that's a cool looking cat. I'd like to develop a breed with that trait. Uh, one recent example is the munchkin, a cat that, as its name implies, has very short legs. It's the corgi of cats. <laughs> and that was just a, a single mutation that people then bred those individuals together to create that breed. Now, the good news is the munchkin actually does not have health issues like similar dogs do because cats are built differently than dogs. So it's okay in that respect. Um, other breeds have been created by people intentionally saying, I would like to develop a cat that looks like a wild cat of a certain type and just selectively breeding individuals to slowly move them in that direction. What are some of your concerns about selective breeding? Well, a lot of people have issues with selective breeding, and I understand that. And the two biggest issues are, one, some of these cats are not healthy. Uh, the Persian cat, again, the one with the no nose, has a lot of breathing problems and problems with its eye ducts. Again, similar. there are similar dogs, uh, breeds like our French Bulldogs that have the same problems. Uh, the Manx cat, which has no, almost no tail, has spinal issues. The Scottish Fold, whose ears fold forward onto its head, has cartilage problems. There's really no excuse for developing a breed that is bad for the animal. That's That shouldn't happen. Uh, the other concern is that there are lots of cats looking for homes and shelters. And should we really be breeding more individuals as opposed to adopting the cats that are already there? So what can we learn from cat genealogy besides using genetics and creating new breeds? The arrangement of the genome of cats is very similar to that of humans. And so, in fact, we've been able to learn a lot about genetics and even human conditions uh, based on studying the cat genome. Just to give you one example, there was a disease called uh, polycystic kidney disease in cats that was very common, particularly in Persian cats. About 20 years ago, the Persian cat was the most popular breed in the world, and almost 40% of Persian cats had this condition. So it was the biggest genetic problem of cats at that time. Well, geneticists, led by the aptly named Leslie Lyons at the University of Missouri, discovered the gene that causes this disease. And they developed a diagnostic test so you could test whether your cat had that gene or not. The result is that 
people can now test whether their cat has the disease. And there's two things that that allows you to do. First, it allows you to start treating the cat prophylactically before the disease emerges, feeding it an appropriate diet and so on. Secondly, you, you simply don't breed that cat. And so what has happened is that the incidence of polycystic kidney disease in Persian cats has dropped to less than 10%. It's been remarkably successful. Well, it turns out that there is an application to humans as well, because humans also get polycystic kidney disease, and the mutation that causes it turns out to be very similar. And so the advances made in understanding the disease in cats are now being translated to humans as well. Well, given what we know about feral cats and how cats behave when they live outside of our homes, do you think we'll ever fully domesticate cats or will they always have that one paw in the wild? I think what we're going to see is that cat evolution is going to move in two different directions. Uh, there will be the cats that have the one paw in the wild. There are, there are now feral cats, unowned outdoor cats, uh, all over the world, an estimated 300 million or so outdoor cats on every continent but Antarctica. Those species are going to evolve and adapt to the conditions they live. You know, in the, in the harsh outback of Australia, they'll evolve to withstand the heat and the lack of water, whereas in the mountains of Tasmania, they will adapt to cold, wet conditions. So those species are going to evolve probably in ways very similar to be like the African wildcat, but adapted to many different environments. On the other hand, people are developing friendlier breeds of house cat, and efforts are going to continue to make cats that are even friendlier and better suited for living in our homes. In other words, to completely domesticate them. People have talked about developing cats that don't want to go outside, or if they do go outside, they don't hunt. And so this will be successful. We have seen with all the other breeds of dogs and cats and other things, if you select intensively enough, you can create breeds with new characteristics. And so I think we will end up with cats that are much more domesticated than they are today, while at the same time, we will have basically a wild version of the domestic cat adapted to living all around the world. <laughs> but I think there will always be that moment when a cat says, okay, enough, leave me alone, go away. Well, very, very likely so, many of them. Although I should tell you, some of these breeds are basically dogs and cats' clothing. The European Burmese is a breed that we have in our house here. And yeah, occasionally they say, leave me alone. But more often they're like, I want to play or rub my belly. Dr. Lossus, thank you so much for your time. Well, it's been a pleasure. Jonathan Lossus is a professor of biology at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. His new book is called The Cat's Meow. How the Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. His cats are called Winston, Jane, Nelson, and Archie. You haven't subscribed from Cat Facts. We hope you've enjoyed this app. Goodbye. Well, thank goodness that's over. I just don't understand how that got on my phone. Welcome to Dog Facts. Dogs are descended from Eurasian wolves. Oh, no. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. This episode was produced by Olsi Sorokina. 
Quirks and Quarks is also produced by Mark Crawley, Sonia Biting, and our senior producer is Jim Levins. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.